Do you have a life verse? How many of you have a life verse? One, two, three, four. More and more of you are getting them as... No, that's cool. Um, I mean, we all have favorite verses. And a life verse, in case you don't have one and want to get one, is, is a verse or a passage that sort of, sort of uh, focuses your attention on the Lord or spells out for you what you think God has called you to do or uh, is a passage of promise that you kind of hang on to. I mean, it's great. You should pray and ask the Lord um, if he has a defining passage like that for your earthly journey. And uh, you should memorize it and hang on to it close to your heart. You ever wondered if Jesus had a life verse? Um, The passage that Pastor Brent read a little earlier, comes awfully close. And um, so I want to revisit with you and set a little bit of a stage for the passage that uh, Pastor Brent read. You see, this happened right after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. And so in verse 14 of Luke 4, I assume your tablet people are all there, and you uh, Bible people, the truly sanctified ones, are... uh, are, are there on an actual page like Jesus used. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Had to get it out of my system. Verse 14 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So he returned from where? Well, from being tempted by the enemy and successfully at that. And so now Christ is entering in to his public ministry and um, verse 14 continues, a report about him went through, out through the surrounding country and he taught in the, their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then verse 16 is kind of the specifics of it. I mean, they, we're told now that he's preaching in synagogues all over the place. But verse 16 specifies one such occasion. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. By the way, that's a pretty good custom to have, right? If the Son of God had a custom to come together with God's people once a week. Well, that's a different sermon, but but, um, it's a good idea for you and me. On the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. There were probably a number of synagogues in Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth, um, you only have to have 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. But this evidently was Jesus' home congregation. This is the, quote, church, not a church, but you know what I'm saying, the congregation, the gathering of God's people that he grew up in from his childhood. Now he's uh, a mature man, 30-something, and he's worshiping again where he grew up. And they didn't have a a formal paid clergy. They had uh, rulers, uh, uh, lay leaders, you might say, kind of like our elders who watched over and made sure things took care of people and so forth. If there was a visiting rabbi, he would teach. But any man in the church could read. Um, And so they had a standard order of service as well. There would be the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, the Lord is one, except in Hebrew, of course. And there would be prayers. And then there would be the reading of God's word. 
and it would be read in Hebrew off the scroll. They did not have tablets in those days, at least not anything but stone ones, nor did they have you know, bound Bibles, but you would have the scroll and you'd be able to, uh, to open and, and kind of continue to roll to the place that you were going to read. When they read, the reader would stand. And when they taught, the teacher would sit. Um, Jesus evidently loved the book of Isaiah. And so here he is. Can you picture this? Can you imagine? What if you knew, and probably I don't think anybody did know, that here's the Son of God growing up in this church, this synagogue. I don't know if he ever read the Bible there before. It kind of feels like this all just now, bam, it starts. And uh, how intimidating would that be for a visiting rabbi if they knew? The Son of God is out there. He wrote this. What I'm reading is basically, if you think about it, he is the Word of God. Well, anyhow, finally, here's the place where Jesus gives his first sermon in his home church. If you think about it that way. He quoted from Isaiah 61. I think verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 61 is probably as close to a life verse as Christ had. He he absolutely loved the book of Isaiah. I thought I would show you a few other times when Jesus quoted Isaiah, this gigantic and wonderful book. For example, do you remember when Jesus was explaining about teaching and parables? And he told his disciples, well, basically he said, quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that, quote, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. You should chew on that one a little bit. I don't have time to talk about it, but it's out of Isaiah 6. Or how about when he cleansed the temple and, and threw the money changers out? You remember what he said? He said, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was quoting Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56. You know that often the Lord Jesus would get in the face of the Pharisees and scribes for their hypocrisy. And here's an occasion. He said to them, to the scribes and Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Jesus evidently did not go to the course about, you know, trying to identify with your audience and smooge with them. Instead, he said, uh, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, as it is written where? Isaiah 29, verse 13, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus taught about end times. Uh, you can find it in, in Mark chapter 13 and in uh, Matthew 24, 25, this quote comes in from Mark 13. And Jesus said, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven, power in the, powers in the heavens will be shaken. Did you realize that he was alluding to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10? And when 
our Lord spoke of his imminent death. So this, this journey where he's begun to preach and he's going to, for three years, tour north and south, Judea, Judea area, and, and Galilee, for those three years, inevitably, his path winds to the cross. And when he spoke of his own death, he said, I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Guess where that's from? Isaiah 53, verse 13. So here we are with the shadow of the cross falling on everything. And Jesus has begun his public ministry. And he is going to preach a kind of a foundational message that defines who he is. Now, part of the reason I'm bringing all this up is I intend to uh, embark on a study of the book of Isaiah. And I am more than intimidated by this book. Uh, please pray for me. Um, I don't think that it is possible for me, it may be possible for others, to do a verse by verse. We would all be with Russ by the time I got to about chapter 13. So, I mean... I can't, what I'm going to try to do is get big chunks, you know, chapter 1 and 2 together, and then focus on specific verses that have a particular ap application. So I'm going to go through all 66 chapters, but I think the pace will be a little faster than you may be used to my doing. Um, but I, I wanted you to see how important Isaiah was to Christ. It ought to be important to us. So here he is. In verse, back to Luke 4, um, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and then he read what Pastor Brent read a moment ago. This will be confusing, but I feel like I need to say it. This is an English translation probably from the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So if you go back to Isaiah 61 and read those verses, they won't line up exactly here. And the reason largely is because our Isaiah translation into English is from the Hebrew, whereas the one in the New Testament was from the Greek version, if that's not confusing enough. So anyway, I'm gonna, I just thought hey, we should revisit this sermon. Let's, let's see what Jesus said his mission was. I should tell you, if you read a little further in, in Luke 4, they were really jazzed about hearing this hometown boy uh, deliver such a, a fine message for a while. And then by the end, they were so incensed that they literally wanted to throw Christ off a cliff. So I remember the first time I preached in the church I grew up in, and the reception was not, well, it wasn't exactly warm, but nobody tried to kill me afterwards. So, and I'm grateful for that. Um, they banned me. I talked about Jesus and the church had never heard that before. Um, so I never got to preach there again. But in any case, um, I, just to say what Jesus said offended them their sensibilities, and they tried to throw him off a cliff, and he wasn't ready for that, so of course they didn't. So I want you to notice how verse 18 begins, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How come the Spirit of the Lord is upon, and who's me? 
If he's quoting, who's me? Me is Messiah, the anointed one. The one that God has prepared to deliver his people for thousands of years. We've been waiting for him. We've read the prophetic word that Messiah is coming one day. Jesus picks up the Bible, opens to Isaiah, and starts reading, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then by the end of the, um, of the reading, he begins his message at verse 21 to further expand. That's when he sat down, by the way. He sat down and began to teach, and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? Isaiah said about Messiah was about me. I'm here now. I'm ready to do what God has called me to do. Man, they were offended. Um, What was it that he was being anointed to do? Isn't it interesting, by the way? Father, Son, and Spirit all involved in this ministry to God's wayward children here on planet Earth. Um, Father sent, Spirit anoints Jesus, executes God's plan. So it turns out, he says, I've come for specific kinds of people. Four of them, actually. And I just want to go over that with you. I I think it's worth our reviewing. If Jesus considered this sort of like, you might say, his life verse. Well, who did he come for? Well, first he came for, for poor people to proclaim good news to the poor. I should hasten to add that poor does not mean exclusively economically poor people. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So I think you know people who have incredible wealth and are poor, destitute spiritually. Jesus even told a parable about a guy like that. doesn't even name him. He just calls him a rich man. And he had fabulous wealth and ended up in hell in the parable. So Jesus loved poor people um, and uh, wanted to improve and bless those who are poor financially. But the larger picture is, regardless of your economic status, is the poverty of your own spirit. There are a couple of Greek words that could have been used here. One is the working poor, kind of, you know. It's, and I would say many of us in this room, and some of us still probably, live from paycheck to paycheck. And if nothing breaks down, and if nobody gets sick, you're okay. You're frugal, you stretch things out. I mean, that's a word for poor, but that's not the one that's used in our text. The word for poor here is absolutely destitute, absolutely empty, a beggar sitting, has nothing whatever. Um, Jesus says, that's what you're like. Without me, that's what you're like. You may have, you know, a, a garage full of expensive cars, you may be wearing a watch like this fancy one I've got, you know, $38 Amazon. So, um, but regardless of your bank account statement, your soul is empty. 
You're destitute spiritually. Nothing going on there. And Jesus said for those kind of people, there's good news. Good news. You know what the good news is? Uh, here's what Paul said about it. This is Ephesians 3.8. I think I wrote these down on the... Did I write them down? Yeah. So th there's references you can look up or you can kind of figure out. I'll, I'll quote or read most of these. Paul wrote, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now hear this. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The wealth we need, the poverty that grips our souls, the good news about it is that Jesus is our treasure. Everything about life that's rich and good and fulfilling is in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 3, Paul wrote, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus said, don't don't lay up for tra yourself treasures here on earth where moth and, and mildew, uh, people can break in and steal your stuff. He said instead, this is Matthew 6, 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Our treasure is Jesus. You want to be rich? Christ teaches you how to have a life of fulfillment and blessing, full of joy and peace and a, a a love for people that allows you to live a life of service and to be that way forever and ever and ever. The riches of Christ are fulfilled specifically when we get to heaven. Jesus used Peter to say, there's an inheritance for you that's imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1.4 says. So, Jesus came to the poor, to the destitute, and he said, look, the good news, I am your treasure. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And it's true. He also said, I'm coming now as he reads this text, for those who are captives. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We've talked a lot about the metaphor of slavery in the last few weeks. Jesus said in John 8, 34, he who commits sin as an habitual act is the intent of the original, is a slave to sin. Um, can you be a slave and not know it? Can you be captive and not realize it? Well, yeah. In 1999, it seems like it was like four or five years ago, but it's actually... The Matrix movies came out, you know, the first of, I don't know how many there are now. You remember, the whole idea of that movie was that there were uh, mysterious machines that controlled everything. And people, human beings, were used mainly to harvest resources and power. And so the reality was everybody is hooked up almost like... Um, almost like in incubators. And the, the machines, the matrix is harvesting. But people are given this uh, alternate reality. It's all in their heads where they're living life and going to work and having a family and all these things. And then finally this guy named, who was it? Uh, um, who was it? Yeah, well, that, what they said. Um, <laughs> Uh, figured out this is I mean you got to take a red pill and get 
get on. Well, see, all those people uh, were hooked in. They were captives and didn't even realize it. We are enslaved in more ways than we even realize. Romans 6 talks about our slavery to sin. Colossians 1.13 says that there is a dark domain ruled by Satan. He puts it this way in uh, Colossians 3.13, says that Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You don't realize there's a domain of darkness. People log on to social media and they figure out what they're supposed to think and how they're supposed to dress and these highly paid. I, I just learned that there are people like this called influencers. Are you an influencer? Are you one of those people you get to show, hey, I use this hand cream and look at my hands. And then millions of people buy that hand cream. And so they they I guess that's how they make a living. Right. Is that how it works? Nobody knows. Nobody. I'm so far off. You can't even explain it to me. Well, anyhow, um, what's really happening is that you're in a domain of darkness. Satan controls all that stuff. The culture is under his sway. The perspective that we're all supposed to get woke to is under Satan's power. And so um, we, don't, we don't realize the, the captivity we're in. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 tells us when we talk to people about Jesus, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having after being captured by him to do his will. So... You remember in the early part of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the writer to Hebrews says that one of the ways the enemy enslaves, he says it's by fear of death, we've been captive all of our lives. I could tell you Russ McKay was not afraid of death. You don't need to be afraid. Jesus is on both sides. When he comes to get, you go with him. It's awesome that we are released from the captivity. If the Son makes you free, Jesus himself said this in John 8, 36, you'll be free indeed. There's a freedom that Christ gives. Uh, some of you grew up singing an old hymn. I've, we've sung here, I think, a few times. Crown him with many crowns. You remember that? One of the lyrics says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Free indeed. Um, may I point out too, in verse 18, when it says, he sent me to proclaim liberty. Almost every version has that translated liberty. It's actually the word forgiveness. It's the very word that means forgiveness. This liberty, this freedom, this unleashing, this unplugging from the matrix, it's all about being forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus. Third, a third kind of people, and you can see this is all ways to describe us. Not only captive people, on the flip side, usually I just have a one page, one side fits all kind of thing. Um, blind people. Do you notice how he puts this? He says, and he's sent to proclaim liberty, the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Again, this is um, a way of looking at the condition people are in before Christ. They're blind. You ever had this conversation with somebody? 
Can't you see what you're doing to your family? Can't you see what your drinking does? Can't you see what this drug thing that you're into? Can't you see that your friends are dragging you down? Can't you see how when you're angry like this, the kids get scared? Can't you see? Well, the answer is probably not. There's a kind of blindness to what's really going on. And um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world, little g, the God of this world is who? Yeah, so it's not talking about our God who rules over everything ultimately, but the God of, who, of this world, listen, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Jeremiah predicted this. He says, hear this, O foolish and senseless people, Jeremiah 5.21, who have eyes but see not. Isaiah 42 7 talks about the Messiah coming to open blind eyes. So often our Lord is pictured as bringing light into darkness. We sing about it. The truth is in that um, people love darkness. They prefer it. Apart from the intervention of Almighty God, people like darkness and want to be in darkness. Their deeds are evil. We were there. If you know Christ, that was your state. Maybe you didn't realize it. Um, and so Jesus said, I'm the light of the world in John 8 and in John chapter 9. Do you remember the story of the blind guy? Do you remember how he's blind from birth? Jesus um, healed him. But, of course, he was blind, so he didn't see Christ at that moment. And then the authorities who hated Christ and wanted to kill him came to the blind guy who's now seeing, and he want, they wanted him to throw Jesus under the bus. And they say, yeah, you know, he's a sinner, right? Um, he's doing things on the Sabbath. He's saying things that aren't true. He's, he's nothing but a... Uh, and this poor man, I mean, all he knew, he knew one thing, and that's what he told him. So I, I don't know who's a sinner and who's not a sinner. And one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. Of course, if you speak truth, you're going to kick, be kicked out of your circle. If you uh, speak the truth of the light of Christ in your political environment or in your cultural uh, circle, you, you run the risk of getting kicked out of that because, as someone famously said, you can't handle the truth. Well, Jesus gives us the truth and, and opens our eyes. Um, actually, that story in John chapter 9, the blind guy, what Jesus actually healed that guy of both physical and spiritual blindness. Because here he is, he's, his parents have not stuck up for him, and the leaders, the spiritual leaders in his life, who should have rejoiced that he was able to see now, are, uh, are disgusted with him and kick him out. So he's just sitting there, and here comes Christ. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, I, I, don't, I don't know. Who is that? I am he. Jesus introduces himself, and the man believes in Christ, wants to follow him. Spiritual blindness gone. 
as well as physical blindness. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, it's all about Christ. Once again, it's Jesus and his glory. There's one more that I notice here. Uh, I don't want to promise we're going to get out this early, but holy Toledo. I, you know, I've got two or three sermons I could do. <laughs> I mean, I, I just hate, uh, last week I went 52 minutes. I was so chagrined when I got home and saw how long that was. I thought, well, okay, that was long. And most of you, I mean, the sleepers were already asleep. So I, there's, a, there's a certain number of people who always nod off about 10 minutes in. And so I figure, probably not me. Maybe it's medication or maybe it's just having a seat in a warm place. So I don't usually feel too bad about that. Uh, but I did not realize. Anyway, as long as I'm talking now, I've gotten another couple minutes. Out of it. So anyway, broken people. That's, that's, what, um, that's the way I'm phrasing it from... The end of verse 18 where he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The reason I said broken is because the word actually means to be shattered like a pane of glass, broken like pottery. And you know, I think, that we are a people who are broken. Everybody you meet is broken in some way. If we only knew one another's stories, we would know how broken we are. I mean, we are broken because of the choices we've made that have fractured us and hurt us, and it almost seems like it's permanent. And we're broken because people have done things to us. And we're broken because we have done things to other people. There's plenty of blame to go around. Um, we are a broken people. And... You know, we're a church of broken people. Uh, you have a pastor who's broken in so many ways. And our God has come to us, and he's beginning to put the pieces together. We're all in process. Some of us have it together more than others. Um, we're all getting there. Um, so broken people, um, you know what the opposite of broken is? What would you say? Whole, yeah. Whole, integrated. Uh, that's the Hebrew word shalom. It's the word that means peace. Isaiah, not to bring up Isaiah again, in chapter 9 and verse 6, says that the Messiah to come would be the prince of peace. Jesus said, John 14, 27, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Um, Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Be at peace. I've overcome the world. Peace. Ephesians 2, 14 says, Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 6, 15 says that the gospel we preach, the message of Christ, is a message. It's a gospel of peace. Colossians 3.15 tells us that we, let me just read it, um, that it's Christ's peace that integrates and 
the Greek word is actually umpires our life. Let the peace of Christ rule, umpire in your life. Jesus brings us into a wholeness. We're not fully there. You know, I think to change metaphors, it's, it's like, like Jacob and the limp. You know, he wrestled with Christ and Jesus put his, put his leg out of joint. Remember that story? Well, he always walked with a limp. I mean, we, we are people who, um, if we have wrestled with the Lord, he may allow us to walk with the limp a little bit all of our lives. Uh, the brokenness is not completely healed. But we are people who have received the one who brings peace everywhere and begins to put those pieces back together so we can operate in shalom, in blessing, and well-being. Um, you know, again, I should point out one more thing. It says to set at liberty those who are oppressed or broken. The word liberty, again, forgiveness. So the issue is Christ's forgiveness. It's not, we're not talking some kind of new agey, you know, get in touch with yourself and how wonderful you are inside if you only knew. We're not saying that at all. We're saying just the opposite. It's Christ's forgiveness, his death on the cross that makes all of this reality. So I don't know where you're coming from. I wonder if you're a Christian, what, what did you feel most acutely? Was it your poverty of spirit? Or was it the, the sense that you were bound up and couldn't get free? Or maybe you noticed somehow you, you, you weren't seeing reality. You didn't, you didn't know what was going on, but you were like blinded to the truth. Or maybe you felt like you were just a broken person. Maybe all of those things. Jesus is the answer. Um, one more verse, Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Thank you, somebody. It's right there. You see that word peace? Thank you. Shalom. And with his wounds we are healed. I wish that for you. May it be that we'll be a congregation where people come in their brokenness and they begin to see people who are still on the journey, but we're a little bit integrated. We got a little bit of, um, through Christ, we in our right minds now. We're seeing reality and dealing with it. We're repenting as a way of life now. We're beginning to have relationships that are healthy based on Scripture. And at the center of it all is Christ. May it be that when we look into Isaiah, we'll see Jesus. Because that's the whole point. Isaiah is full of Christ. And part of the mystery of the book in the 8th century B.C. world was Oh, he's talking about this guy who's a suffering servant. We're also talking about this triumphant king. And not everybody put it together. Hey, it's the same person. It's his life as a suffering servant that makes him the king of all kings for us one day. I want to pray for you. I, I wonder if there is anyone here who has not yet put their trust in Christ. So however you phrase it, whatever metaphor you use, whether we're talking about poverty of spirit or blindness or captivity or brokenness. It's all the same deal. You need Christ. You need him more than you need anything, more than another breath, more than a meal. A lot of us could just 
back off on a couple meals and we'd be okay. You need Christ. You really do. Now's the time. Put your trust in Jesus. Let me pray with you about that. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, how we love you. And we thank you for this this, uh, seminal message of our Lord, which was really, in a way, kind of his life verse. Uh, It defined his mission. And Lord, we admit we are those kind of people apart from Jesus. We're as empty and poverty-stricken as can be. We are captive to our own sin and to the law and to a world system that is, gee, it's like the matrix to us, pumping us for resources and filling us with uh, nothing but garbage. Have mercy upon us. Thank you for the liberating power of the gospel. If there's anyone here in this room who has yet to put their trust in Christ, give them the courage, draw them by your spirit, Help them to pray. And can I just say, while we're still praying together with our heads bowed, if you're that person, the Lord's speaking to you, no one expects that you understand all of this. But if you understand that you are a sinner and you need God's forgiveness, Christ is the answer to that. And if you're that far, let me suggest that you pray along with me and ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And so many years ago, I prayed a prayer like this. And I invite you to pray in your heart. Lord Jesus, I need you. For all the reasons that Jesus himself said, my sin, which means poverty and captivity and blindness and brokenness. I, I need help. I can't do it. I give up. Lord Jesus. Please come into my life. Be my redeemer and king. Thank you for dying to pay the penalty for those things that I could never pay off. Teach me what it means to live as a Christian. I make this declaration in prayer to you because I know you've got your hand on me now. Lord, I pray for anybody who might have prayed. May they have the courage to follow through to tell somebody. And for all the rest of us who are just grateful recipients of what you've done, thank you so much for the gospel of peace. Thank you for Jesus most of all. And we pray in his name. Amen.